This is David and Grant. Just a few weeks ago was March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And that is a big deal in a lot of countries, and especially in Russia, uh, in the Soviet times and in modern Russia, too. International Women's Day is a huge holiday celebrating women. So in honor of March 8th, we are bringing you a special episode by women for women. But uh, actually, it's mostly by us. Yeah. Being a uh, podcast with two dudes hosting it, uh, it is mostly going to be us. But really, we do have a, a special guest coming in a little bit later on. So if you are sick of hearing our voices, our manly, manly voices, then stick around. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. So, yeah, let's get into it. In 2003, we moved to Russia together, and it changed us in a permanent way. We learned to survive the snow, to drink vodka, and to beat ourselves in the bathhouse. We discovered a land of poets and philosophers, of ancient mysteries and modern transformations. It was an entirely different world. Ever since we left, we've wanted to share this great country with others. Consider this podcast our love letter to Russia. I'm Grant. And I'm David. Welcome to Season 2 of To Russia With Love. Uh, International Women's Day, March 8th. That's a big deal. When I think about that, I, I'm, I'm reminded of Russia because that was the first place where I've ever really celebrated it or seen it celebrated. And it reminds me a lot of May Day, uh, May 1st, which was another... A holiday that was very popular in Russia. And, and and I had never, both of those holidays, I never really knew about them before we moved out there and lived in Russia. Did you know about those before, Dave? Not about March 8th. Uh, I knew about May Day. Um, I, I knew about it as, had this image of it as a communist holiday. Uh-huh. And May Day is interesting because it, uh, yeah, it's popular. It has been popular in socialist and communist countries, but not only there, Actually, all over the world, May 1st is Labor Day. That's the day to celebrate Labor Day, labor rights and uh, struggles yeah. of unions and workers to have more rights. And it's it's almost everywhere in the world except in the United States. Yeah. Where, I mean, I think the history is during the Cold War, you know, we had to be special and different from the Soviet Union. So we picked a totally different <laughs> day to be our Labor Day. Yeah. But most of the world celebrates Labor Day on May 1st. The unusual thing and this is where the similarity with International Women's Day comes. May Day actually started in the United States. Huh. It was uh, started with some marches and uh, strikes and protests by immigrant workers in Chicago. They were fighting for an eight-hour workday for you know basic things that we take for granted. Yeah, basic workers' rights. Yeah. And so that eventually became the day, May 1st, to celebrate workers' rights. Started in the U.S. and, you know, a few decades later, everybody had forgotten about it in the U.S. Mm. And that's actually the history of International Women's Day. Mm. It started in the Socialist Party of America. They organized a Women's Day celebration. The first one was on February 28th, 1909, and that was in New York. And that was in the context of the 1910 International Socialist Women's Conference. So it's started within these socialist and communist groups. And uh, in the early 20th century, then it spread to a few different European countries, mostly within those uh, Marxist circles. Then 1917, women gained suffrage in the Soviet Union. Uh, You know, recently, just after the the revolution, by then they declared March 8th a national holiday. And it seems like that it stuck a lot more there than it stuck here in the States. Yeah, initially it was it was primarily in socialist movements in communist countries, uh, you know, caught on with Chinese communists. And then when China had the revolution, of course, they made it a national holiday. And in Russia, they, they celebrated it for years, but it was still a working day until all the way up to 1965. The Soviet government declared it an official holiday commemorating women's role in the building of the country. So the, the quote, this is from Wikipedia, in commemoration of the outstanding merits of Soviet women in communistic construction in the defense of their fatherland during the Great Patriotic War, in their heroism and selflessness at the front and in the rear. And uh, but again, it was, you know, really a huge Russian thing, a big Soviet thing until 1975 when the United Nations adopted it. Hmm. And so since then, it's spread to a lot of countries all over the world. And to this day, countries of of all types, uh, all types of governments, celebrate March 8th 
as International Women's Day, a day to recognize women's contributions to society, to the country, and to talk about women's rights, to talk about where women's rights are now, where they've been in the past, struggles for different women's rights, and it's a day to think about all that. What's interesting in that that declaration that you read, it talks about in defense of their fatherland during the Great Patriotic War, which is really ironic being that most people, when you talk about Russia, people call it the motherland. And that's been a, a big part, I think, of the history as well. I think that's a literal translation from uh, the Russian term for the, the homeland in Russian and in a lot of countries. It's It derives from the word for father. It's Atsyechistva. Hmm. Atsyets is father in Russian. So Atsyechistva is the, the fatherland. Uh, that's the official word. In English, we get this idea of Mother Russia. The motherland probably comes from the, the phrase Mother Russia. Yeah. And uh, that's migrated to English. So there's a little, little fun Russian language lesson for the day. Well, in thinking about that, it makes me think about stereotypes. You know, we think about motherland and Mother Russia, but we as Americans, and I think probably all over the world, we stereotype each other all the time. Sure. There's a lot of, you know, stereotypes that we had before moving to Russia about women in Russia. I, I, I remember just thinking, you know, beforehand the about Baba Yaga, the witch, <laughs> and thinking that all old Russian women were witches. <laughs> And then on the other side of it, there was this kind of uh, hyper-sexualized version of Russian women that I think society kind of taught me to believe that would be what all the women were going to be like. I think in, in some ways, kind of like the mail-order bride mentality. I don't know. I just thought, you know, we all have these stereotypes, right? I feel like the, the stereotype of the the babushka, the, the haggard Baba Yaga image, I think that was common in... Uh, during the Cold War days, hmm. when there was this image of of women from the Eastern Bloc, from the communist world, being a very unfeminine, I think that was a common stereotype in the West, yeah. and that's given way in post-Soviet times to this opposite extreme. Hmm. And now you have, uh, and you can see this all over I mean, Western social media, in film, in the media. This, I think, if there's one, the most common stereotype of Russian women in the West. It's this hypersexual image of, of of this woman who's just extremely sexualized. Um, there are tons of compilation videos, fashion of, models and stuff like that. Yeah, fashion models. Uh, you know, gorgeous. There are tons of of videos, compilation videos on YouTube. All of them have the phrase "crazy Russians" in them somewhere, <laughs> and and most of them are are photographs from uh, Lord knows what part of Russia. Of women like in bikinis, in ridiculous positions, lying down in like puddles of water on the street, <laughs> and uh, just these absurd photos that people have found. I, I think I posted one of those years ago, and my buddy Nikita, he actually responded back and he said, You know, that's kind of selective with <laughs> the image that you're depicting of the women in my country. And then he responded, yeah, think? he replied with a video. Uh, the title was like stupid American quotes or something. And <laughs> and it was the, you know, the dumbest quotes of Americans getting interviewed on the street. Yeah. And he said, like, you're not you're not a bunch of angels yourselves. You can pick the the weirdest selection from any country. Yeah. Yeah. That happens in a lot of our media. The, the Russian women are portrayed, you know, as this like seductress. Uh, you think about like some of the spy movies and it's always this super hot Russian spy and you don't realize she's a bad guy until the end after she seduces the good guy, the good American guy and, uh, and then betrays him. Yeah. I remember that that was kind of like growing up. That was kind of the mentality of what, you know, Russian women are going to do is like, <laughs> really. <laughs> so the, my favorite depiction of that for just how absurd it is and ridiculous is in a James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan, uh, Goldeneye, there is this character, and she's this like Russian spy woman. She's she's this kick-ass spy, you know. She beats people up, but she's also extremely sexual. So her thing is to kill men by crushing them with her thighs. That's that's her superpower. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! I've found the clip from that. So you know we can't play it on the air because of copyright, but we can watch it. And we can we can tell people what's going on in this clip. Just it's so ridiculous. Uh, so should we yeah. uh, should we take a look at that? Yeah, let's start it up. Let's let's do a little play by play action here. All right, so let's hit play. 
So it starts off here. Uh, James Bond is lying on the jungle floor with his love interest next to him. He, they've both passed out or something. And his eyes are opening. He sees a helicopter. Sun's shining behind the helicopter. It's hovering above <laughs> him. What's going on here? Is somebody going to come out of that helicopter? Is it a good guy? A rope or... comes out of the helicopter. So he's peering oh. up into the sun. There's a figure up there. Who could it be? Is it Santa Claus? <laughs> and his legs are spread. <laughs> she comes rappelling down with legs akimbo. Oh! Kicks him to the ground. Kicks... <laughs> <laughs> James James Bond, you didn't see that coming? Kicks him in the ribs. She's got like a million guns strapped to her. And this is one of my favorite quotes from her here. She says, this time the pleasure will be all mine. And then she licks his face. <laughs> Just licks up on his face. She's straddling him. And so now she's squeezing and he's suffering. She's like crushing his hips or his ribs or something. And he's twisting back and <laughs> forth. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, here comes the American girl. Is she going to save the day? Nope. She gets she gets headbutted. <laughs> yeah, I think the the spy says something like, "Wait your turn, sweetheart." <laughs> so now James Bond straps her to the cord again, shoots the helicopter out of the air. She gets pulled back by the helicopter and uh, crushed in the tree. And now we know that there's a catchphrase coming up: "Helicopter explodes." In true James Bond fashion, he says something witty. Yeah, he says she always did enjoy a good squeeze. <laughs> Oh, jeez. <laughs> so ridiculous. It's just absurd, man. But yeah, that's that's the classic example. This sexy Russian spy seduces James Bond and comes back and almost kills him with her amazing legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is this is everywhere. This archetype of the sexy Russian spy, the sexy Russian mail-order bride. Yeah. Uh, it's all over the media. I think... The most nuanced depiction of a Russian mail-order bride in Western media that I've seen is in an episode of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. (laughs) (laughs) And it is actually, for being Aqua Teen Hunger Force, it's surprisingly complex, only in that she's she's not the butt of the joke. I mean, she shows up and, of course, they draw her super sexy and curvaceous. But really, the joke is on the the main characters, Shake and Carl, because they both want to marry her at the same time. Her name's like Svetlana or something. Yes, right? Svetlana. And so Shake and Carl, neither of them could afford to pay for her fees on his own, so they just decide to split her. But she shows up <laughs> and she's just freaked out. And to their credit, they actually got a real. I'm pretty sure it's a real Russian speaker doing the voice. It, it's an okay. excellent performance. And so she shows up and just like stares at them, and she says, "Do we start? Like, what, are you crazy or something? And she runs off. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. For Aqua Teen Hunger Force to be leading the pack on complexity and nuance, we're not doing good with our depictions of Russian women in our media. Yeah. And a, a few weeks ago, we asked on our Instagram page, what what are your thoughts about Russian women or what are... What do you think of when you think of Russian women? We got a lot of really good responses. Some of them were based off of some of these tropes and stereotypes. For example, one of our listeners mentioned a phrase that he's heard that you've got to keep in mind that every devushka will eventually become a babushka, <laughs> which basically means... And this is this is in every culture. Every girl is going to become a grandma. Yeah, that's that's how it goes. Other folks talked about physical appearances as well. That seems to be something that's been ingrained in us in Western culture yeah. to just focus on the physical appearance. So many images to uh, Maria Sharapova, the tennis champion. And, yeah, um, but you know, obviously, always appears in these very sexy outfits, and and it's uh, so yeah, it's combining this strong images. Obviously, she's she's not famous for being a model. She's famous for being an athlete, but combining that with the it's very sexualized image. Yeah. What's interesting is to look at the flip side of things because, like you said, Grant, uh, there are stereotypes everywhere about countries that are on the other side of the world. Yeah. And the same goes for a lot of folks in Russia have these images of of women in the U.S. or women in the West. Yeah. 
And what I noticed when I would talk to people, uh, some people who had traveled to the West, others who had just seen movies, it was interesting to see the the images that they had of women, especially women in the U.S. And the stereotype there was kind of this combination, I mean, almost the opposite of this Maria Sharapova stereotype, this combination of viewing women as sort of mannish in the U.S. and in the West as not being very feminine, and but also as being kind of ditzy, yeah. kind of dumb. I get that. I think, you know, a lot of the movies that the United States is exporting over into the rest of the world, you kind of get the, and especially when we were there, you get kind of the valley girl trope, you know, like the, oh my God. <laughs> and so many of these, these teen movies too. Yeah. <laughs> I, one of my friends in Saratov, he once approached me and he said, you know, I've seen a lot of your movies about your high school in, in the States. And I think your, your education system, it's, it's, it must be crap. <laughs> and I said, well, what, why do you say that? He said, well, I've seen your movies and people are still in high school in like their thirties. I look at, <laughs> look at these actors' faces. These guys are obviously in their 30s, and they haven't finished high school yet. Oh, that's funny. That's funny on so many levels. I mean, <laughs> you know, there could be something to be said about education, but... Uh... <laughs> but also what about our casting directors in Hollywood? Like, just cast teenagers to play teenagers, man. Yeah. And cast Russians to play Russians. Like, most Russian characters are not even played by actual Russian actors. The character in the James Bond clip we saw... Uh, she is, because of how she pronounces things, I can tell she is obviously not Russian. She's something else. Yeah. So I should mention, I, I noticed this, the general stereotype about Americans uh, was this idea that Americans were fairly uneducated, inelegant, you know, simplistic, simple-minded. And, and so that was uh, applied to women also. Just as far as physical appearance, uh, a lot of people, men and women in Russia, were struck by... What they saw as as being sloppily dressed, huh? It was kind of this kind of this impression when they would talk about uh, American women, they would say, "Really, you're going to go out of the house looking like that?" I mean, were they talk uh, like we're thinking like jeans and a sweatshirt or a t shirt kind of a thing? Yeah, it's very casual, and I think especially here in California, um, you see a lot yeah. of this extremely casual style, uh, which seemed like almost obscene to some of my friends in Saratov for somebody to go out of the house like yeah. that. And actually, one of our listeners mentioned that uh, it sounds like he's spent quite a bit of time in Moscow and St. Petersburg. He is uh, a Westerner, I think. And he talks about the places that he would go in Moscow and St. Pete's. He noticed that a lot of the young women he saw uh, seemed to put a lot of time into their appearance. Um, you know, always just very well made up, hair done, you know, very fashionable clothing. But I love his comment because it's very tempered, too. It's very nuanced. And, and he says, I think that might be because a lot of fancy business offices are adjacent to touristy parts of Moscow and St. Pete's. OK. So he's he's really trying to take into this, take into account the subjectivity of the places that he happened to be. Yeah. That was what he noticed, though. But I would back that up uh, in general, in Saratov and Engels even, which are off the beaten track, uh, not major cities. Yeah, there's a, a much more tendency to care for one's appearance. I remember it seems like our friends, even if we were just going out to a casual dinner, it seemed like people would kind of dress up. It was like an event. You know, people would go to McDonald's and dress up to go to McDonald's. Right. That's what uh, Lindsay, my wife, her family mentioned, like, You'd go there and see people dressed up like it was a fine dining experience. But that was just the, the culture. People would kind of dress nicely. Yeah, and that, I think that's the case in, in a lot of other countries, too. I've noticed it in, in Mexico City. There's more of a tendency to care for your appearance, to not go out of the house looking like you just rolled out of bed. And that's all uh, relative. It's all culturally relative. Yeah, I think it's very telling, though, when we look at these stereotypes, what are they focused on? When we're talking about women in particular, so many of the stereotypes on both sides of the Atlantic are focused on appearance. Yeah, We saw that, I think, when uh, with our first trips to Russia, with the way that, that we thought women would be in Russia, the way that the first questions that we had about women there... Yeah. We asked Scott, we said, are there any cute girls out there? Yeah, that was the first thing on our on our minds. I mean, we were these young guys, too. Like, um, I think Murph was 18, you were 19 or 20. Yeah. And so the first thing we asked about the women, it wasn't, are the women interesting to talk to? Are they intelligent? It was, I think the question was, are there any hot chicks over there? 
what do the chicks look like? Yeah. And so yeah. we we asked Scott, our youth pastor at the time, he had been to Russia before our first trip there on a reconnaissance trip. I think his comment was, yeah, the girls are hot if you're into melon heads. <laughs> yeah, that that became that became our our word for yeah. for good looking girls. Yeah, I think he was referring to the this the more Slavic feature of the of a person's head being a little more round than a, a lot of Western people. Yeah. Like kind of a douchey comment to make in retrospect. Yeah. But that was that was our lingo. We picked up on that and we were kind of douchey in that. And I think a little bit and I look back, uh, you, ju- you just sent me some uh, old files from our old computer of a blog that I used to have. And I, I, I was reading over those last night. And the way that I talked about women, the way that I talked about different people is really kind of embarrassing. And even though we used those those words and we used, you know, we called pretty girls melon heads, I don't advocate for that now. <laughs> yeah, do, do not call people melon heads, guys. Not cool. Yeah, but that was that was a little bit of who we were back then, and we were growing. We were in this transitional period of life, and that's the way that we we saw life. We we just cared about you know the looks of the the girls that we were going to meet out there. One of the first things that I remember when we came out to Russia, and you you talked a little bit about this of people dressing up. A lot of the the girls wore high heel shoes, and not just high heel shoes. I mean, the, a lot of these were like stiletto heels, like up to six inches high, uh, which didn't seem very practical, especially, you know, with the streets, brick streets and sidewalks. And we didn't quite have cobblestone, but sometimes it felt like it out there. But the thing that got me the most about it, and I, I couldn't get into it, was these high heels that the girls were wearing had these extra long pointy toes. Oh, the Do you remember point, those? The pointy toed shoes. Oh, you, <laughs> yeah. you were you were so pissed about those. You hated those shoes. I hated those and I don't know why. I, I, that was just a preference thing, but it just really bothered me <laughs> that there was this extra point on their shoes and I, I had this fantasy of running around with a hatchet and just chopping off the extra part of the shoes. And then I just thought it would be hilarious that like what what would happen if I started doing that and I just realized, wait a minute, Russian women just have these extra pointy toes and they they go in this point. And what if I started chopping these off and I started maiming these women with their extra long pointy toes? <laughs> that is that is a bizarre fantasy to have. That was, that was really weird. There was one girl that I remember. I think her name was Katya. And I remember thinking she was so cool because she was the only girl who didn't wear these shoes. She wore like skater style shoes. Or um, I, I think she had an, a, pair, a pair of Adidas shoes that she would wear, like the big clunky ones that were in style in America back then. And I always thought like, oh, sh- she's cool. I want to get to know her. She was a friend of, of Galia's, I think, of the girl who, who talked like the woman from Mary Poppins. Who said, have, yeah. have you tried the Russian prostitutes? There we go with another, another kind of stereotype, like Mar- the Mary Poppins and the suffragette. <laughs> uh, ladies in that yeah but Katya she was sure her, her style in general was was like kind of a skater style she she really looked like she was more Californian than than Russian the way she dressed yeah. and carried herself and she really stood out because she she didn't fall into the societal norms of the time back there one of the other things that I think before we moved there I remember thinking about was romanticizing Russian women as being beautiful and and sexy. And a part of that was thinking that I was going to really like the Russian accent. And uh, do you remember, we watched we watched a movie before we moved out there to kind of study up, and, and I'm doing air quotes for that, study up on uh, <laughs> Russian culture. Right. But it was uh, a Nicole Kidman film. What was that called? Birthday Girl. It was, I think it was a British production. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Nicole Kidman, uh, she plays uh, a Russian mail-order bride who goes and moves in with this introverted British guy. He, uh, yeah, meets her online. She comes and she doesn't speak English in the film. It's interesting that again they they couldn't get a Russian actress to play <laughs> play the Russian. Like it's got to be Nicole Kidman, Australian actress. Yeah, interesting movie. It was a it was a well done movie. We were watching that movie though, and there's a scene where it is her birthday, and she's she's got some friends who are translating for her to telling her new British husband things. And she's playing this very like soft-spoken, demure uh, Russian girl, and and I remember when we watched it, you were saying, "Oh man, that accent just kills me." Guys, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to control myself over there. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're right. I, th- I think I think at that time I was like, I got to have a plan. And there was a girl I was interested back here in the States and we kind of made a pact that we would wait around until I came back, which probably probably saved me quite a bit of heartache and, and getting in trouble with the Baptists. <laughs> yeah, you not to mention save the women heartache. Yeah. Once they realize... Uh... Because when we, when we, as we interacted with people, a lot of these stereotypes, uh, these preconceived notions, they they really started to dissolve and dissipate as we actually got to know people. We mentioned in a previous uh, episode about how because we at first when we first moved there we couldn't communicate because of the language barrier, we had this romanticized version of these girls that we were interacting with, and they probably had a, a similar version of us in their minds of this perfect person. But the longer that we stayed there, the longer that we got to know people, the better that we got in the language. We really got to know each other a little bit better. And we kind of broke past some of those stereotypes and we we got to see each other for who we were. Yeah, we we very quickly stopped calling anybody melonheads. Yeah. And I I think that happened I mean even the the transformation started in that first trip when we were just visiting because as we interacted with people, especially our our interpreters, there were yeah. a handful of young ladies from the Saratov State University who had been hired to interpret for us. And so they spoke yeah. English and they could interact with us and we were just blown away by how incredible they were as as human beings, like we were impressed with this multifaceted level of intelligence and talent and cultural knowledge. Yeah. It totally took us out of this Western fantasy of of any of those stereotypes. The the sexualized Russian woman, the soft spoken, demure Russian woman, the babushka. Any mm-hmm. of these stereotypes, they fly out the window when you when you just get to know somebody. And we talked yeah. we talked to these people and, and we would talk to them and one of my first uh, impressions as I got to know many Russian women was this fascinating combination between a lot of things in the outward appearance that seemed very feminine to me along with an extremely strong character. I I was struck by how many of the women just take charge and get stuff done. Yeah, that's true. And I think before I had moved to Russia, I had this I had this idea of a continuum with different cultures where some cultures would have really clearly defined gender roles and I imagine those cultures as being more conservative and with women having more of a submissive role in those cultures. And then I thought of other cultures being more egalitarian. And so I would imagine the egalitarian cultures where men and women would dress more similar, fashions would be a little more androgynous, and rights would be more equal. And then all of those notions just got blown out of the water in Russia because I found this combination of extremely feminine outward appearance and uh, and also found that, that Russian women really like men to be gentlemen. They They like men to... You know, give gifts and flowers, and they appreciate those details, but that doesn't mean they want to be some sort of passive uh, Mrs. Cleaver from some yeah. sort of 1950s gender roles. They they get stuff done. Yeah, they will take no. charge. They will organize programs, um, and they are decisive, intelligent, multifaceted, complex people. I, I don't have enough adjectives to describe <laughs> how fascinating and how, how much admiration Russian women inspired in me as I got to know them. Well, you mentioned the uh, declaration back in uh, 1965 declaring Women's Day a national holiday about that it's in commemoration of these women. And a part of that was the defense of the of Russia during the Patriotic War, their heroism and selflessness even at the front, not not just at home, but out there fighting. I think that when you dive deep into the history of women in Russia, that's something that has to be explored, not just in the recent past, you know, in World War II, but even further on. Another person who commented on our Instagram post talked about warrior women right, right. to protect the home and the mothers and the daughters who are, you know, ready to kill if the livelihood is, is going to be threatened. It says, our women fight alongside men, and that is honor. Right. And there's been a lot of that throughout the years in the history of Russia. Russia's been at war for the last few centuries almost continuously, whether it was all the men and the and the boys going out to fight and the women having to take care of home life and get things done, as you said, or not even that, but also the women going out and being a part of that front protecting 
their land. That's a, that's a big part of the history. Yeah, an interesting thing about Russia's geography, and, and this contributes to the fact that so many countries have tried to invade Russia over the years, is that Russia has, has never had really good natural barriers to protect itself. Yeah. It's in the middle of this landmass, no really good oceans or mountain ranges. And so all of Russia's neighbors have tried to tried to mess with Russia at some point. Yeah. I mean, the, the list of countries that have tried to invade Russia is extremely long. And so there's this series of over the centuries and centuries, series of wars on the front that the men had to go off and fight. And often the women would fight alongside the men, but often they stayed at home and administered the farm, administered the town and got really used to taking charge and running things. And you can see that in, in the culture today. I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of kick-ass women in the history of Russia. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of badass women, I'd like to introduce you all to my sister-in-law, Alicia Dawson. Hey, Alicia. Hello. As many of you know, uh, I'm married to Lindsay, and Lindsay and Alicia grew up in Moscow, Russia, Uh at the turn of the century. So um, it's been fun uh, always talking about our different experiences, and I'm glad to have you here on the podcast, Alicia. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Alicia is the creator and editor of Screen Door Review. It's a quarterly online free access literary journal. It publishes works written by people who identify as both Southern and queer. The latest issue was published on March 1st, and you can find that and all previous issues at www screendoorreview.com or follow them on Twitter for all up-to-date content at screen underscore door underscore R. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. I'm glad to have you uh, here on the podcast. We've been talking about it for a while. Yeah, we have. I'm glad it's finally going down. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned uh, I see you as a badass woman. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You've kind of introduced me to feminism and um and what it means to be a, a queer woman uh, growing up in Russia, growing up in the South. Um, yeah. Glad to be here. Glad to, glad to be all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so you uh, you grew up in elementary school, kind of in Moscow, Russia. Tell me a little bit about your first impressions of International Women's Day, which is today, by the way. We're recording actually on March eighth. Happy Women's Day to you. Thank you so much. Tell me some of your first impressions and uh, and what you what you see. What is what does it mean to be a woman in Russia? Yeah, well, so, of course, what it means to be a woman in Russia is going to mean so many different things for different <laughs> for different women, right? Yeah. But I can tell you a good deal about my first impressions and what I remember from being a child and uh, my first experiences with International Women's Day. So I was in third grade when we moved to Moscow, and literally, like, we moved in January, and it was really cold. And when we showed up, the snow was taller than I was, which I just thought was really exciting because I just really liked building forts. So I was like, yes. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then we go to Russian school for a little while before going to international school. It was a lot of fun and it was weird and I didn't speak any Russian. So oftentimes I had no clue what was going on. But one thing that was made very clear to me was that March 8th was Women's Day. And when it came about, they, you know, they're like, all right, you have to go to the front of the room with all the other girls and with the women teachers. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever. I just sort of let them usher me wherever. And then we all stood up and then all of the boys had to, I guess beforehand, you know, they bought some chocolates and some flowers and things and brought them for each one of the girls and women hmm. there and we just lined up and they walked past the line and handed us chocolate and flowers and I loved it it was great <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the best day of the year yeah and so obviously from then on that I mean that was a pretty good first impression and from then on it just is like you you start realizing how important it is for Russia, even though the holiday originated in the United States, mm -hmm. but it became such a big, important holiday in Russia, and, and it still is, and people take it very seriously, and there's so much that can be said about it now, but, you know, again, keeping with my sort of initial 
initial impressions was that it felt it felt empowering it felt fun it felt nice to be recognized yeah and again as a kid i just really liked the the whole chocolate aspect (laughs) (laughs) but yeah yeah, that was sort of my initial response and then you know walking around in moscow there are a lot of women female authorities there's you know mother russia it's it's immediately comes to mind you know that that women are in my head, at least, it's, they seem to be respected and, and things are, you know, again, lots can be said about that now and and the way I've grown to see things differently since I was a kid. But yeah. I was just like, cool, we have a holiday. But it felt a little bit like Mother's Day, a little bit like Valentine's Day kind of mixed together. But it was always a lot of fun and it was something we celebrated every year for sure and that my family still celebrates. That was uh, one of the things that I was in pressed by um i had never i don't think i'd ever heard of international woman's day before moving to russia and i was only there for one and Mm -hmm. then when i got to know Lindsay and got to know you and your family you guys obviously had much more of an impression of that than i did you know i think of your mom posting pictures of you and Lindsay on facebook on march 8th and talking about how proud she is to have two strong beautiful daughters yeah i always thought that was really cool just recently, I feel like in the last year or two, uh, it's become a little bit more popular here in the States. It has. Yeah. It's been interesting to watch it catch on. And I think I think a lot of like social activism and uh-huh. nonprofit groups have kind of been the first, at least in my opinion, at least the ones that I started recognizing to see it first here in America yeah. are the ones who kind of grabbed onto it to really focus on like issues around Women's Day yeah. that particularly affect, you know, women. So that's been cool to see, definitely. Yeah. In talking about Women's Day to you, uh, you you mentioned and you you sent me some articles that were really kind of surprising to me. You know, knowing that there is this day that was such a big deal in Russia, these articles were surprising because it kind of made it feel like this day was in some ways some you know, kind of a lip service thing or, you know, it's a great, a great day to give chocolates and flowers to the women in your life, kind of like Mother's Day. But then what happens on every other day of the year? Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. So I know I I didn't send you this article, but it just popped up today, literally 12 hours ago from the Moscow Times. And it says this women's day, it's not her fault. Hmm. So like, it's not her fault. It's not her fault in Russian. And uh, it's it's kind of talking about that, how in some groups in Russia, International Women's Day is trying to kind of get back to its more political roots hmm. in terms of not making it this lip service thing, because we can talk about it all day long and we can give flowers to women and we can give chocolates to women. But in a society where 49% of the women that this survey interviewed on this article, 49% of women they feel most afraid for their safety hmm. in their own house. Wow. So domestic violence is pretty rampant in Russia. And especially now, since Putin passed a law that first offenders for domestic violence, they just have to pay like a really small fine or something, even if they have to do anything. Hmm. But there's no like any kind of jail time for you know beating somebody up, beating your spouse up or anything like that. I mean, that's a big obviously step backward and it doesn't really promote this idea that women's day you would think would promote the safety the physical safety of of your female spouse you know Hmm. like that seems pretty important to the whole celebrating a woman thing is she can't be a woman if her physical body is gone right so this article really showed some good statistics and what they're doing right now in russia and how people are getting really pissed off about it and how a lot of feminist activists are getting very angry and they're trying even more so to do things about it. I mean, people, there's always been activists in Russia trying to do things, um, but now they're, I feel like they're getting a little bit more attention because of that law that's happened and people are pushing back against it. But then when people speak out against it, there's (laughs) Putin literally like this week enacted a law uh, or it's not a law yet. He introduced it and it will probably become a law where you could literally be jailed for complaining about the government on social media. Yeah, I heard about that. These two things combined are not good, right? Especially especially for women. And so 
Um, apparently, there are these events going on now on March 8th in Russia and in Belarus, the Not Her Fault events, Nyevinovata. All of the money from the different events will go to a charity that helps survivors of domestic abuse in, in Russia and Belarus. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, it's great. So there's concerts, there's exhibitions, there's lectures, there's poetry readings. Because poetry has always been a big part of activism anywhere, but also in Russia. It's It's been interesting to look at this. And of course, it's made me want to follow all of these different people on social media to see what they're doing, but also to follow their stories. And sadly, you know, some of them may get persecuted for it or jailed because of this new um, legislation. So yeah, it's crazy. Well, we've heard, I think in the last few years, if people are paying attention to the news, we've heard about. Uh, activists in Russia being jailed or being persecuted. Mm -hmm. You follow Pussy Riot. Oh, yeah, definitely. When I think of badass women who are activists in Russia, they, they're they the first to my mind. Sure. I mean, they're a music group, but they're much more than that. Yeah. T tell me a little bit about what you know about them. Yeah, so it's it's good that you, yeah, you said that. They're a music group, of course, but they're so much more than that. They're a punk group, but they definitely can't be only defined as that. They have so many different aspects to who they are as an identity, as a group. Mm. They're all very involved. They've all been jailed uh, for many of their protests before. Uh, one of the biggest one, the most famous one, was the one in the Cathedral Christ the Savior in Moscow. Yeah. But yeah, so one of their most recent ones that they got <laughs> jailed for, whatever, was the when they stormed the World Cup pitch. Yeah. They... Uh, interrupted the World Cup game, which is just fascinating that they were able to pull this off. I mean, that's kind of a huge feat. And all they did was run across the field, you know, like, it wasn't like they were naked or, or just, I mean, which they, you know, some of their other protests, there's been like some toplessness or whatever to prove a certain point. And they just literally just running across the field. And uh, of course, it got cut out of the mainstream, like the media kind of covered it up. And I didn't really see much about it. But uh, The New Yorker wrote an article about it and a couple other places. Yeah, people think that they're these like radical feminism and that it's just it's it's just too radical or, or they're just too crazy or they're too out there. But the reason if you look at their demands, why they interrupted the the soccer game is because these six reasons they said they want to have Russia free all political prisoners, mm. stop jailing people for social media likes, stop illegal arrests at protests, allow for a little political competition, which Putin doesn't have, right? Yeah, that's true. Or he just, you know, squishes and moves on. And for them to people to stop fabricating criminal cases and people and putting people in jail for no reason and turn the earthly policemen into heavenly policemen. So that's one of the ways that, and that can be interpreted in different ways. So this whole specifically looking at stop illegal arrests at protests, stop jailing people for social media likes. These are the ideas to me that like the, a government doing these things seems to be the more radical of, of the things when you compare it to someone interrupting a soccer game. Yeah. Like these politicians and these things that they're speaking out against are crazy. And, and all they did was, was interrupt a soccer game and just so that, you know, cause they knew that it would get attention and the attention that they want to draw isn't to themselves, but is to these demands and to the political climate in Russia, which is really not going well, to say the least, right? Especially for women. It's really not going in a forward direction. As uh, activists uh, who are known to be feminists, mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that their demands, the things that they're asking for and requesting for, aren't even necessarily simply for women. You know, it's for, for all different people, which I, I find really interesting. And there's kind of like a long history of that, I think, with Russian women. I I go back and I think of uh, in World War II, there's a group of snipers who just were feared by the Nazis. And they these were a group of women snipers mm -hmm. who um, just had hundreds of confirmed kills. And one of them who I think is the most badass of them all was Lyudmila Pavlichenko. I think that's how you say her name. Yeah, Pavlichenko. But Russia mm -hmm. has a history of women fighting for justice not just for themselves, but for everybody, for, for the common good. I think that's really cool that they follow along in that tradition as well. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that you brought that up about 
about, yeah, these, these demands or these things aren't necessarily for, for women. I think most feminists will agree that feminism isn't just for women. It's yeah. for everybody. But in order to be the everybody, we need feminism to work. Feminism works for everyone's goals, really, when it's, when it's done properly, right? Yeah. Pussy Riot talks about that a lot when they kind of define feminism and they talk about like feminism isn't great feminism unless it unless it's for the better of betterment of, of, of everyone. Yeah. So so to me, you know, that it does it does make sense that these goals and these demands are really focused towards social justice for everyone who is being oppressed. Mm. If you want to, it's easy to find, you know, if you look up Pussy Riot's definition on feminism, Rolling Stone did an interview with them about it in 2018. And there's a lot of good definitions and talks and, and conversations with them about that. Yeah. So are there other badass Russian women that come to mind when you hear that, when you hear that phrase, badass Russian women, you know, who, who do you think of? Is there anyone specific or are there gr other groups that you think of? Yeah. Well, is there are definitely other feminist groups in Russia working towards these same goals, doing it in different ways or the same ways. And so I think about all of those people, but honestly, when you say that the first people that come to my mind, when you think of, when I think of badass Russian women, God, I think of all of the babushki <laughs> who every winter, as soon as the snow starts, this is how you know winter has started in Russia, is when you wake up in the morning really early to the sound of this like, <laughs> in the morning, I don't know if you experienced this when you were there, Oh yeah. but it's the babushki, it's the old women in their scarves and they're bundled up and they're the ones that are out on the street shoveling all the snow into a big corner pile <laughs> of each little block, apartment block. Yeah. So thinking about badass Russian women, I just think of that sound, that... Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely relate with that. Dave and I, I think, would both say that it, it was the women who kind of held everything together where we were. Uh, like you said, you yeah. know, sweeping off, uh, shoveling the snow, uh, you know, out in the courtyard, sweeping down the sidewalks, making sure it wasn't dirty, picking up trash, all that stuff. It was the women oh, yeah. who were taking care of society and making sure that we weren't just devolving into animals. Yeah, totally. And, and when I was a kid, mm -hmm. sometimes when I would go outside as a kid and let's say I'm carrying my scarf instead mm -hmm. of wearing my scarf, they the Russian babushka would always stop me and be like, oh, no, you cannot go any further. You're going to catch a cold. I can't, <laughs> I can't, like, in my good conscience, let you walk past me not wearing your scarf in the wintertime. Yeah. And, I mean, to be fair, like, she's probably right, <laughs> you know. Um, I should have been wearing the scarf. It's, like, negative 10 or something, right? But um, they would always be the ones like on our way out of the door that would double check us and like make sure we were dressed appropriately and bundle us up and put us like tie physically themselves would take our scarves and tie it around our necks and <laughs> make sure our hats were on. And so, yeah, those, those are my very first impressions and continual impressions of, of Russian women were just the, the women who wouldn't let us go out of the building without making sure our hats were on good. Yeah. Which was, you know, as a kid, you're just like, okay. <laughs> but um, I don't, I can really appreciate that now looking back. Yeah. So, so we have maybe some of the, what people would say, like exceptional activists like Pussy Riot and others like them. But then there's the everyday activists who are just taking care of us and taking care of everybody. Yeah. And doing it and doing it in, in, you know, against odds, you yeah. know, doing it against the odds and, and having to fight against things that are not seen and yeah russian women are very strong i mean i know that that's the sort of stereotype but that's one of them that i feel like we can really stick with is there's just some sort of supernatural strength about them in a lot of ways not to tokenize them or to put them up too much on a pedestal even though i just did just call them supernatural but <laughs> that's one of the things that sticks with I think anybody who goes to russia it's the strength the strength of a russian woman is pretty easy to see i'm with you on that so uh, you you have a, a poem that you want to read. Can you tell us a little bit about that and then read it for us? Yeah, well, and I'm going to read snippets of a poem because it is very long. Okay. It's called Requiem. The author is Anna Akhmatova. She lived when Stalin was in control 
of Russia. Uh, anybody who was trying to write something that he didn't want them to write would have a really bad day um, when he found out about it. She wrote this poem sometime in the 1930s, and she knew that she wouldn't be allowed to publish it. Hmm. And her son was imprisoned. It's talking about the prison system. It's talking about her sort of experience and what it's like to wait outside of a prison. Only he was in prison, not because he was a writer, but because of his mother's writing. And they imprisoned him in, in order to try to stop mm. her from writing what she was writing. But she was, she was very proud to be Russian. She was very proud to be Russian. Uh, one of her poems that you guys can definitely look up and should, it's about her basically being proud of not leaving when other writers left Russia. That she was very proud to be in and amongst those um, and to stay and to sort of document in her own mind um, and for other people this, the, the suffering under Stalin's regime, but she didn't want to be separated from it. So it starts um, with this. Not under foreign skies nor under foreign wings protected. I shared all of this with my own people there where misfortune had abandoned us. One day, somehow, someone picked me out. On that occasion, there was a woman standing behind me, her lips blue with cold, who of course had never in her life heard my name. Jolted out of the torpor characteristic of all of us, she said into my ear, and everyone whispered there, could one even describe this? And I answered, I can. It was then that something like a smile slid across what had previously been just a face. Mountains fall before this grief. A mighty river stops its flow. But prison doors stay firmly bolted, shutting off the convict burrows and an anguish close to death. I'm going to skip down a little ways. But you can you know, start to get the kind of feel and see almost what she was seeing. Madness with its wings has covered half my soul. It feeds me fiery wine and lures me into the abyss. That's when I understood, while listening to my alien delirium, that I must hand the victory to it. However much I nag, however much I beg, it will not let me take one single thing away. Not my son's frightening eyes, a suffering set in stone, or prison visiting hours, or days that end in storms. Not the sweet coolness of a hand, nor the anxious shade of lime trees, nor the light dis distant sounds of final comforting words. Mm. So I'm going to stop. It's a, it's a really long poem, but it's definitely worth reading all the way through. Yeah. You can Google Requiem Anna Akhmatova, and it, it's, it'll pop up. But um, yeah, she's... Someone who persevered, to say the least, stayed with her people, documented her people, suffered with her people, and wrote about it, even with threats of death. I think um, current activism and things kind of harkens back to, or could look, just kind of take a lot from these types of Russian women and these types of Russian words. I think it's a powerful message, and it's and it's still relevant, I guess, is all I'm trying to say. Is it's still very relevant. Yeah. And that's kind of crazy. Well, Alicia, thank you for sharing that and sharing your thoughts, uh, you know, teaching us a little bit about what's actually going on in Russia and, you know, a little bit of what it means to generally be a woman in Russia. I, uh, I think uh, you, uh, you have that same strength that we agree that you find out there. So happy Women's Day to you. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Once again, uh, y'all, if you want to check out some of Alicia's work, um, some of what she's uh, doing, check out www.screendoorreview.com. There's a lot of great works on there from a lot of different queer folks who are living in the South. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, Alicia, for being with us. I hope this is not the last time. Uh, you've got a lot of cool experiences and stories, and I, I hope we get to hear from you again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Man, 
Alicia is uh, just a brilliant woman. I've I've gotten to hang out with her several times. I, I always love hanging out with her. We we speak Russian together. Her Russian is still excellent. Uh, we even speak Old English, Anglo-Saxon language together. Yeah. She studied medieval culture. Yeah, she's a medievalist. Right. I think I sent her a postcard from Mexico City that I wrote in Anglo-Saxon runes and in the, the Anglo-Saxon language. <laughs> so that's a nerd-level expert on that. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of kick-ass women, we want to talk about three kick-ass women in Russian history. And I want to start with a woman to whom I really am indebted. I owe my family history, my existence. And that's Catherine the Great. Hmm. And she was she was the leader, the ruler of Russia. She was the longest female ruler of Russia in history. From uh, She was the Tsarina from 1762 to 1796. And there is a lot that's very interesting about her. Uh, She was actually from Germany originally, from a a German family, what's now called Germany. And so the reason that I'm a fan of Catherine the Great is because she brought our people over to Russia. Yeah. Because she was German ethnicity, uh, she married into the royal families of Russia, and she, she felt that closeness to Germany. So she invited anybody from Germany to come settle the southwest part of Russia So any German families who wanted to could move to Russia tax-free, not have to pay any taxes or do military service. And they were allowed to just have their communities and speak German and and, uh, just free land and free everything. I come from a long line of lazy freeloaders, and we were happy happy to take that uh, offer. And so thanks to Catherine the Great, we, we got to Russia, we settled Russia, and then, of course, my folks came to the States after that. Yeah. Um she was she was a really progressive for her time. She brought the enlightenment ideals to Russia from Europe. You know, ideas of uh, everything from educating women. She established the Smolny Institute, which was the first state-sponsored institute for women's higher education in all of Europe, not just Russia. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and she was she promoted a lot of legislation uh, based on the ideals uh, of the enlightenment. Um you know, the French philosophers she she had a big she called it the Grand Commission in Moscow. It was sort of a, a parliament of consultation uh, with people from all different social classes. They had the the nobles and the burghers and the peasants, and people of different nationalities, different ethnicities, and they all came together to look at the needs of the Russian Empire and how they could meet the needs of all these different sectors of society. So extremely uh, progressive. I mean, even for our day, half the countries on Earth aren't considering all of the people and demographics and ethnicities. And she's doing this in the 1700s. I don't know so much about her, but one of the things I know is she was a big patron of the arts. She commissioned and and, and brought a lot of art to the Hermitage up in St. Pete's, right. which uh, I, I've been to. We were there on a tour and we just had to run through it. But uh, but it was amazing. There were so many great pieces of art. It was like it's comparable to the Louvre. Yeah, yeah, an incredible collection of art. And while she was in charge of Russia, Russia imported. They they studied the classical and and European uh, influences of the Enlightenment, and then really the what was called the Russian Enlightenment started. So then you have philosophers mm-hmm. like uh, Gavrila Dzerzhavin, uh, Zinis van Vizin, and Ippolit Bogdanovich. They're setting the groundwork for some of the greatest Russian writers in the 19th century, especially uh, Pushkin was inspired by them. And a lot of that is thanks to her her patronage. The whole world owes a lot to her when it comes to, to that. Yeah, definitely a, a really progressive thinker, uh, really ahead of her time and even ahead of our time in a lot of the world when it comes to this very novel idea that a country's leaders should consider all the people and all the groups in that country. Now, in a different sort of badassery, uh, there's there's some other women that we, we've got to talk about. And I mentioned uh, this in my conversation with Alicia, but Ludmila Pavlichenko uh, was a sniper in World War II. Oh, Ludmila Pavlichenko. Oh, so hot. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not about hotness here. Well, well, she was uh, she was one of the most decorated snipers in World War II, she had uh, over 300 kills. She was regarded one of the top military snipers of her time and was definitely the most successful female sniper in history. The press called her Lady Death. The Nazis knew who she was. Uh, They called her the Russian bitch from hell. (laughs) (laughs) Always a good sign when Nazis are making up nasty names for you. That's a 
always an, a compliment. Yeah, and she she definitely personified that towards them. They bombed her university in Kiev, which pissed her off, and so she enlisted and became became one of the best snipers in history. And uh, she's not the only woman sniper that the Russians brought in. She was one of, of 2,000 female snipers in the Red Army, which I think is really cool. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a, a man's war. The women were stepping up and getting out there and protecting their country and their homeland and really rose in the ranks and became some of the best at what they did at killing Nazis. Right. Eventually she, she visited the United States. She got injured and she couldn't go back into combat, but she went and visited and rallied different people, you know, in the United States and Canada to come and help. She met with president Franklin Roosevelt and his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. And what's funny is some of the stereotypes that we've talked about earlier in the episode, she was a victim too. Um, she was criticized by some reporters by the length of the skirt of her uniform, saying really? that in America, women's skirts were shorter and and her uniform made her look fat. So she's this kick-ass Nazi killer, and they're criticizing yeah. her for not looking hot enough. For her looks? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, definite, definite double standards when it comes to some of that. But all that to say, she was a badass. The other snipers, the other female snipers who protected Russia and helped helped defeat the Nazis were badasses. Right. Now, I read that she, she killed 36 Nazi snipers when she was in the field, and she had techniques that she would use to make them give away their position. One of the things she would do is she, she would tie strips of cloth to a tree so that they'd flutter in the wind. That would distract the other guys. And then somewhere else she'd rig up a mannequin and use that as a decoy. <laughs> and uh, so they would think that that was a Soviet soldier. The Nazi snipers would shoot at the mannequin and then she'd see their gunfire and then she'd shoot the sniper and take him out. She was smart. <laughs> yeah, just brilliant and ruthless. She got all those kills because she knew what she was doing. Now, there, there's another group of, uh, of female warriors we want to talk about, also from World War II, the Great Patriotic War. And uh, these are the Night Witches of Russia. And that, yeah. that's a name that I think the Germans gave them, that name. Nachthexen was the name that the Germans gave them. That's me in Russian. Mm. And uh, it's a nickname for these female aviators, uh, pilots of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. Yeah, they were right up there with Pavlichenko and terrorizing the Germans, the Nazis, and fighting back and, and holding them off. Yeah, it was in 1941 that uh, Stalin issued an order and he deployed the first three women's Air Force units. And that includes this regiment wow. of the Night Witches. So there was Major Marina Raskova, and she was uh, one of the people in charge of it. Really young women, like in their late teens, early 20s. And uh, their whole thing yeah. was just to harass the Nazi forces. Yeah. They would, and to, they also did precision bombing campaigns, going after targets, but also making life impossible for, for the other side so that the Nazis couldn't make progress. They have some connection to where we lived in Engels, right? Yeah, they uh, some members of them were deployed from the Engels Military Aviation School uh, on the Southern Front. And uh, Engels was a military okay. town, and uh, there, yeah, I think to this day there are, are military bases there, and so they were deployed from there in 1942. So connection to the town we lived in, and uh, they were they were just relentless. They flew, they did over 23,000 sorties, dropped over 3,000 tons of bombs, 26,000 incendiary wow. shells. Uh, this was out of all of the Soviet Air Force. It was the most highly decorated female unit. And by the end of the war, they had pilots yeah. who had flown over 800 missions against the Nazis. So real war heroes fighting tooth and nail to save their homeland. It's obvious that in Russia, the women didn't just stay home and let the men go out and fight. They stepped up and were a big part of protecting their country. This is just badass. That's right. So Alicia and I talked about the exceptional women of Russia, but one of the things we both agreed on was that all of the women were exceptional in Russia, and not just in Russia, but everywhere. Some of the day-to-day, -day what we would call normal experiences, I think we can celebrate women for. Uh, just right. a few weeks ago with International Women's Day, that's a part of that celebration and a part of 
uh, rights for women around the world. But I think it would be fitting for us to kind of end this episode by celebrating some of the normal women in Russia. Right. You've got a quote, right, Grant, from uh, from the book Russian Journal, um, Andrea Lee. She lived in Russia in the late 70s, I think 1978 in the Soviet Union. Yeah. And uh, don't you have a quote from her first experience in the Banya with all the women in the Banya? I do. You sent this book to me a few weeks ago, and I've been going through it. And it's been really cool to kind of get some of the experience of uh, of an American in the Soviet Union in the 70s and to know like kind of how that lined up a little bit with our experience as well. But this quote is is great. It just talks about the normal women in Russia. And, and we want to we want to end this episode by reading that and celebrating women. Here it is. The nude women here were the women I had seen carrying string bags on the metro. Minus their flimsy flowered dresses and cheap shoes, they were as I might have imagined them, mainly stocky, often bulging grotesquely, but so unpretentious and unselfconscious that they had a powerful appeal. Many had magnificent braids of hair. Old and young, they chatted, strolled idly around, put on makeup, drank beer. I tried and failed to imagine American women of all ages in such a setting. I'm going to skip a little bit. There was a magical feeling of freedom in the air, the unhindered freedom of women in a place from which men are excluded. I have felt this intoxicating sense of liberty in the similar situations at home in America, but for Russian women, the feeling must be even more intense. What, what a beautiful way to describe it, that, that camaraderie, the solidarity with women in a space that men are not in. Yeah. And Andrea Lee is an incredible writer. I, I read that book. I devoured it, and I mailed it to you. Uh, I've read some other stuff she's written, novels. Uh, she's a, I highly recommend her, and I think we'll be quoting from, from her book, Russian Journal, in the future again. Um, so I think it's fitting to end with a, a magnificent female writer for this episode. And uh, to invite women yeah. to, to find a space like that banya, you know, we are two dudes here saying, get away from us dudes for a while. <laughs> uh, find find a place with other women where you can just talk about your shared experience. Uh, find a place that is all your own. And continue to help us, help educate us, us men, um, help us to, to learn to respect and to and to love you um, and to see you as who you are. Yeah. Um, I know I don't get it right all the time, as is evidenced through some of our stories. We've, you know, we've definitely made mistakes, but help us to celebrate you as you are. Absolutely. So on behalf of two dudes to all the women out there from us at To Russia With Love, as we say in Russia on March 8th, Спасибо за то, что вы есть. Без вас нет нас. Thank you for existing. Without you, we cannot exist either. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Russia With Love. Stay connected with us on all the social media platforms. You can find us on Instagram at TRWL underscore podcast, Facebook and Twitter, TRWL podcast. As always, you can email us with any of your comments or suggestions. Our email address is trwlpodcast at gmail.com. Whether you are a man or a woman man, happy March 8th. Поздравляем с праздником. Спасибо за внимание. Please, thank you.